Hi, I'm Neil Orford, and welcome to the Critique Journal Club Monthly Wrap-Up. And this is the wrap-up for the month of July 2012. So let's start with the world of coronary artery disease. A prospective study published in the New England Journal of Medicine compared coronary CT angiography to standard evaluation of patients presenting with acute coronary syndromes without diagnostic criteria of an infarct, that is, ischemic ECG changes or initial troponin rise. They found that in the CTA group, there was reduced length of stay, that is a shorter length of stay in the emergency department, uh, more direct discharges from the emergency department, but there were more downstream investigations. So overall, CTA in the ED may get patients home quicker and out of ED quicker. So that's interesting. Moving to the world of cardiac surgery, there's a large multi-centre RCT published in JAMA. Now, this study compared acatacine, an adenosine-regulating agent, delivered by cardioplegia in intermediate to high-risk non-emergency on-pump CAGs to placebo. Now, the study was stopped for futility at 3,080 of 7,500 patients enrolled. What led up to this study was a 1997 meta-analysis of over 4,000 patients in five trials that suggested benefit. So this seems to be the end of ketosine as a cardioplegia agent at least. The other cardiac surgery study which caught our eye was published in the Archives of Internal Medicine. Again, a large study. It compared Jehovah's Witness patients who didn't receive blood after cardiac surgery to matched patients who did, that is, non-Jehovah's Witness patients who did. And the Jehovah's Witness patients who didn't receive blood had better outcomes. So what were the possible reasons for these improved outcomes in the witnesses? Well, one is that they may be a healthier group than the non-witnesses, but the authors tried to overcome this through propensity matching. The second is that the witnesses are treated differently than non-witnesses, and this could be that um, a healthier group are selected by doctors prior to surgery, knowing that they can't have transfusions. It may be that there are different pre- and intraoperative measures used to optimise blood conservation and prevent transfusion. And it may be that blood transfusions are bad for you. Now, what adds sort of interest to this study is that it was performed by Koch and colleagues who uh, published that high-impact paper in the New England Journal of Medicine on age of blood and mortality after cardiac surgery. There are a couple of paediatric critical care papers that caught our eye. The first one was a retrospective study of infants with severe bronchiolitis admitted to a tertiary ICU over a 10-year period in Sydney. Now, bronchiolitis is common and it's the most frequent indication for non-elective admission to PICUs in Australia and New Zealand. And techniques have evolved significantly in the last decade with an increasing use of non-invasive ventilation over invasive ventilation and really this study just describes that. 
they showed that in non-invasive ventilation was more frequent, invasive ventilation reduced, uh, and that the patients with the longest length of stay were those who failed non-invasive ventilation. Fortunately, the increase in non-invasive ventilation was accompanied by a decrease in failed NIV, which reduced from 32% at the start of the period to sort of 13.5% at the end. So it's not that there's an inappropriate increase in non-invasive ventilation. It would appear that they're just doing it better. The second study, published in Intensive Care Medicine, was a large UK database review which compared the characteristics and outcomes of paediatric critical illness in Down syndrome children compared to those without Down syndrome. And they looked at over 1,200 Down syndrome children admitted to ICU compared to over 32,000 without Down syndrome. The Down syndrome group were younger and had a greater proportion of cardiac disease as their primary reason for admission, which isn't surprising. When they removed the cardiac surgical group and compared non-cardiac surgery Down syndrome critically ill children with non-Down syndrome critically ill children, they found that although overall mortality was the same, there was a difference in the time course of mortality. That is, the Down syndrome group had a lower initial mortality and a higher late mortality, which was after seven days. And they go on to give an interesting discussion of why that might be. Why is there different time-dependent mortality? Now, is it just due to a different distribution of diseases? Is it due to unrecorded comorbidities? Or is it due to a hypothesised different response to critical illness in Down syndrome? Now, there is evidence for this, as Down syndrome kids have a different response to oxidative stress due to an altered ratio of superoxide dismutase, which is a key antioxidant molecule encoded by chromosome 21. They also have an altered response to stress, which might be an altered hibernation response. Now, this hibernation response is where individuals who are able to trigger a cellular adaptation to stress that allows hibernation or protection of cells may require more early support because their organs are hibernating but have better long-term outcomes, which is pretty interesting food for thought. Starts lovers can breathe a sigh of relief as the attention switches to gelatin. So a systematic review and meta-analysis published in Intensive Care Medicine basically suggests that gelatin has managed to keep a low profile with inadequate evidence to prove safety and efficacy. Not a good couple of months for artificial colloids. In feeding news, we see the enteric trial published in Critical Care Medicine. This multi-centre randomised controlled trial compared early nasojejunal tube placement to nasogastric nutrition in critically ill patients ventilated for greater than 48 hours with moderate gastric residual volumes. What they reported 
was that although frictional small bowel tubes are effective, that is, that they get into the small bowel in 15 hours in 87% of patients, they don't change nutrition delivery. So there was no difference in the primary outcome, which was nutrition delivery in the small bowel group compared to the gastric group. There was also no difference in secondary outcomes like ventilator-associated pneumonia, which theoretically would decrease by decreasing gastric distension. So patients with elevated gastric residual volumes early in critical illness don't appear to benefit from early placement of a small bowel tube. Now when you combine this with the recent trophic feeding studies and the negative PN studies and early PN studies, it seems to be adding to the landscape of evidence in critical illness that in non-malnourished patients on ventilators, it is okay to go gently with feeding in the first seven days. A controlled trial of electronic automated advisory vital sign monitoring in general hospital wards was published in Critical Care Medicine. So as we all know, rapid response teams have become a big part of critical care medicine. This expanding field of care depends on a lot of variables that we have less control over than we do in the ICU environment. This includes the accuracy, frequency and diligence of vital sign measurement and patient assessment during the 24-hour period, particularly on wards where there are lower nurse-patient ratios. So this study reports the effect of an automated advisory vital sign monitor in five hospitals in Australia, the US, Sweden and the UK, and it was before and after design. What they showed was that having an automated system led to reduced time to collect vital signs, no difference in rapid response calls, but an increase in rapid response calls for respiratory criteria at an earlier stage where there was less physiological derangement in the patient and as a result there was decreased hospital stay and increased survival. So it seemed that the intervention led to better recognition of respiratory deterioration before other physiology became abnormal and led to better patient outcomes. Now I guess this will have to be replicated in other studies but it certainly seems to be an improvement in care for the deteriorating patient. Eli Zule and colleagues produced another paper from the Outcomeria study, and this one was entertaining for a few reasons. Firstly, in French ICUs, there is a bias towards treatment on birthdays, with 3.2% of patients spending their birthday in ICU, reaffirming the knowledge that there is bias in end-of-life decision-making. And secondly, I learned a new acronym, which was DFLST, Decision to Forego Life-Sustaining Treatments. An epidemiological study from Quebec was published in JAMA looking at the risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome following the H1N1 influenza vaccine. So the, there was an increase in GBS cases reported following the 1976 swine flu epidemic and that was attributed to the inactivated H1N1 vaccine and this is thought to be due to different influenza vaccines inducing different anti-gangliocide antibodies. 
Um, and so naturally there have been concerns about the 2009 H1N1 vaccine. So they looked at 83 GBS cases that occurred in 3.5 million people at an incident rate of 2.3 per 100,000. And of these 25 cases occurred within eight weeks of immunisation, the risk of GBS was highest in the four weeks post-vaccination, uh, and that was a relative risk of 2.75. That only occurred in people who are 50 years of old or older, suggesting that there is a small but real increased risk of GBS in over 50-year-old patients who have the H1N1 vaccine. The authors comment, and probably rightly, that that is overshadowed by the risk of getting GBS. So that's it for this month's Journal Club. Come and visit Critique and have a look at the papers, at the abstracts and the comments and some of the ones that we haven't discussed here. Otherwise, I'll see you next month. Thank you.